There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Allie Wentworth, and you're listening to Go Ask Alley, where this season I'm asking the question, how do you grow a teenager in a pandemic? Today we're talking about rejection and failure and how it's a constant battle. And it's not just teenagers. We all go through this and we all face these scenarios at some point in our lives. This is a time where parents can help, whether our teen didn't get into their dream college, they got a low grade on a test or recently were dumped for the first time. I think particularly in a pandemic, all these things are magnified. And here to speak with me on this topic today is Jessica Leahy. She is a teacher, a writer, a speaker. She is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jessica, thank you for joining me on today's 10-hour episode I have with you on Go Ask Alley. (laughs) You're so welcome. I know it's a scary title. It is a really scary title. I I mean, I like that you put a gift and failure in the same sentence. So it it gives it some optimism, which which clearly caught my eye. Um, so tell me right now, we are we're in a pandemic. Um, we're kind of quarantined. What is your mom situation at home? Where how, what are the kids? How old? What are they doing? Mom's situation is such that when this all started, actually, we had to rush to get everyone home. We had a kid who was 
across the ocean and had to somehow get back to this country and get all of his stuff out of his dorm room. So we did one of those things where a friend of his went through on FaceTime and pointed Uh the camera at things and said, should I pack that? Is that yours? And then essentially shipped. It was a mess. But luckily now my older son is at a very small college in a very small town in rural Vermont. So they're able to really create an island, which is the only way that this really works for colleges these Mm -hmm. days. Um, And then my younger son just turned 17 and he's in school part-time. The school set it up. So half the kids are in school Monday, Tuesday, the other half are in school Thursday, Friday, and then everyone is on Zoom on Wednesdays together. For him, it's working out pretty well because there aren't any cases at his school and yet he gets to be in his boy cave and It's a little of everything, and it seems to work pretty well. So I have two teenage daughters who are both uh, remote learning. So right now they're in their rooms in case you Mm -hmm. hear a scream. One of them (laughs) is with the college counselor, and the other one is is in math class. But um, it's been an interesting journey here, being with them while they're in school. Right. Well, we're in Vermont. So luckily, our numbers are the lowest in the country right now. So we're able to at least breathe a bit of a sigh of relief that our kids can be in school and be fairly safe. And, it, you know, in places where kids are all remote all the time, it's just so much more difficult because as a teacher, I was a teacher for 20 years. I've taught every grade from six to 12. The secret sauce of teaching is not about that face-to-face time as much in class. It's in all those moments when a kid is walking past you in the hallway and said, oh, dude, that chemistry problem, I really didn't understand that. Can I swing by and ask you about that? Or, you know, those moments when you just are having these casual conversations with kids while you're helping them deal with the, the total morass that's in their locker. Those are the moments where the really great communication and um, connection happens between teacher and student. And without that, um, it's a very different picture with school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I'm thinking about the pandemic and kids that are at home or sometimes at home and how parents' responses uh, are right now. And I have some friends that are sort of homeschooling or sitting next to their kid and they're becoming real helicopter parents. And then I have other friends who are like, I'm just going to let them go lock themselves in the room and they'll do their work and I'm just going to be very hands off. And so it's particularly interesting to me to talk to you about this subject because of the pandemic, The, the idea of the gift of failure in a pandemic is a little bit more charged, I think. There are huge downsides. There are also massive opportunities. And I'm, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna, but I am really optimistic about education. I'm optimistic about teenagers. I love that in earlier episodes of your podcast, your guests in particular have made it really clear how the teenage brain works and the opportunities that are available there and the things we need to protect about their brains. Anyone who's optimistic about teens, frankly, is on Team Jess. I'm I'm thrilled. I love it. Um, But there are some really important opportunities right now. And part of those have to do with the fact that um, one of your guests talked about when you're with your kids more often and maybe not making as much eye contact, conversations can happen. You also know better than anyone what your kids are interested in. So that brings me to outcome love, because particularly uh, in our little bubble in New York City, I see a lot of that. I see a lot of when a child does really well on a test, Mm -hmm. they get love. They might even get uh, a shiny star on the fridge, as you say. They might even get like a new iPhone or the shiny enticements you talk about. And then I have also seen a kid 
doesn't do as well as their parents want. And you see them not only withdraw their love, but the look of disappointment on their face. And it makes me want to run over and hug their kid. So talk to to us about outcome love. So outcome love, and there's, it's also love in exchange for performance. It's, there's so many different ways you can talk about it, but Overall, it's a really damaging thing that you can do to your kid emotionally. And not only that, it is a form of extrinsic motivator, a motivator that comes from outside of you. If you're studying chemistry because you want your parents' love, you are not likely to persist with the studying of chemistry, for example. So we know for a fact, based on 40 years of really good research, that extrinsic motivators, um, especially especially with teenagers because of some of the things you guys have talked about on this podcast, like they're not fully formed frontal lobes. It's difficult for teenagers to keep those sort of long-term goals of, you know, I will get X reward if I just do Y. And we know for a fact that with human beings, extrinsic motivators, with very few exceptions, um, in order to get people to get motivated, just don't work. So sticker charts, generally speaking, don't work with one exception, um, which would be potty training because being out of diapers is actually sort of its own form of reward. Um, being paid, We, we for, gave our kids M&Ms when they, were, yeah. when they did it in the potty. So. Yeah, being paid for grades, uh, you know, all of that sort of love and exchange for performance kind of stuff, but also the negative stuff like, Um, you're under threat of being uh, grounded if you don't keep a certain GPA or surveillance, surveilling your kids on their phones, surveilling your kids when they drive places and watching where they go. Um, I've had kids tell me their parents actually critique the routes they take. Oh my God. Um, All of that quote unquote surveillance. And I'm not saying we can't do those things, Mm -hmm. but we have to understand what they are, which is an extrinsic motivator. And they do not work long-term if we want kids to be motivated. So what we want is intrinsic motivation. Right. Because there are long-term mental health effects of the the reward kind of. Right. Yes. Right. So let's talk about how not to do it because it's really, really simple. It's so simple. First of all, let's stop putting report cards on the refrigerator. Stop FaceTiming them and putting them with grandma and Instagramming them. Or as you you say, the portal refresh. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So the kids come home with the report card. Well, I guess now they don't even come home with it. They just open it up on the computer. Um, Let's say they have an A. Let's say they have a C or a D or an F. Um, you know, the joke now is that, um, you know, B minus is the new F. And so oh anyway, we get these grades home and we look at them and we we have an emotional reaction, right? Because of course we do. We want our kids to be successful. We want our kids to have opportunities. But when we talk to them about those grades, if we can keep it about the process and mm-hmm. less about the end product then number one, you'll be more effective in communicating with your kids about how to do better next time. But they'll also believe us when we say what we care about is the learning because right now they don't. They know that what we really care about are those precious A's and those precious gold stars and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. So if we can have a conversation with them about like, for example, you know, oh, (laughs) interesting grades. So what did you do to get this grade? What are you going to do next time? What are you going to leave behind and not do next time that you did this time? What didn't work? Did you get enough sleep? Did you use flashcards? Did you highlight everything and just assume that you could memorize it all the night before the test? All of these process questions help them really buy our messaging about the fact that every step along the way is a process toward the next thing. And, you know, making them feel bad about something that's happening right now is not going to help in a conversation about how to do better next time. 
So essentially, you're treating an A and a, and a failing grade the same in the sense that it's all about process and less about product. They're doing that enough on their own. And talk to anyone who works with kids um, and anxiety. They're circling the drain over and over. Why was it an 89 and not a yeah. 91? Why was it? So the more we can pull the conversation back, it helps kids, especially who are perfectionists. Mm-hmm. It helps kids who have really high anxiety levels, who are neuroatypical, who have learning issues. Mm-hmm. The more we can drag that conversation away from the product and back to the process, the better we're going to do. And when does praise and, and self-esteem work? Okay, so two different questions. So praise, the, any te- as any teacher can tell you, the more specific the praise and the more oriented toward the process, the better. Mm-hmm. So for example, sweetie, I'm so proud of you for sticking with that problem because you know a year ago, you would have just freaked out, gone boneless, had a tantrum, given up, whatever. I'm just really proud of you for handling that. The self-esteem question is really tricky because we were told during the 670s, early, you know, late 60s, early 70s, that the more we told our kids how wonderful they are, the better their self-esteem would be. But what we know from research on self-esteem is that actually the opposite can be true, especially for kids who have low self-esteem. The more we tell them, you're so great, you're so wonderful, you just fell out of the womb good at math and it just comes so easily for you, blah, blah, blah. For kids who are struggling at school, the more we tell them those sort of like intrinsic, you know, Uh, you're just so great, you're so perfect, the worse they're going to feel, the lower their self-esteem goes because what we're telling them is, oh, sweetie, that reality that you're conveying to me about how you feel dumb in algebra class, that's not, that couldn't be true because Mm -hmm. you're so smart. Mm -hmm. And what we're telling them is your reality is not valid. Let me tell you what your reality should be. And when those two things don't jive, it's really troubling for them. It's really challenging. Let me ask you this. So, and tell me if I'm, completely off base. What I try to do is the praise comes for from me to my children in the realm of who they are as people. So I'll say, I'm really proud of mm-hmm. you as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you asked without me saying so, like, how can I help? All that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I try yeah. to keep the grades and the school stuff like you said, more about the process. So Fantastic. I say to my kids all the time, they, you know, if I sell a TV show, they go, when's it going to be on on HBO, you know, and I'll mm-hmm. say, I don't care about that so much. I'm really enjoying writing this TV show, even though mm-hmm. I could take my own life. But I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to teach them that we sometimes overlook the process and go right to the end result. Right. Um, no, that's that sounds fantastic. That's perfect. And as a parent, and especially as a teacher of kids who have been made to feel stupid their whole lives, either because they've had untreated learning issues or whatever, um, my telling them, you're so smart, you're so talented, is going to do very little for them. My showing them how far they've come in their writing over a month or six months, that is concrete evidence. Right. And, and what's really interesting about this, and since you have girls, you'll be interested in this, I was talking to, um, Rachel Simmons has written about this beautifully in her book. One of the interesting differences between girls and boys when it comes to failure is this. Boys are particularly good at, let's say they fail a test or a project just goes awry. They're pretty good at putting that thing over there and saying, oh, look at that thing that I failed at over there. I'm I'm cool. But Uh that thing over there, I really failed at that. A girl is more likely to say, oh, I am a failure. I, not that thing over there, but I am a failure. And what's worse is that when presented with evidence of their success, of their 
of their competence, they're more likely to push that evidence off as due to luck, due to, oh, I had a good lab partner, good timing, that kind of stuff. Um, That wasn't me. That was um, luck. I was fortunate there. So girls internalize it. The failure. Girls tend to internalize. Boys tend to be a little bit better at, you know, but then there's all sorts of other, you know, boys have all Let me ask you a question about failure and success Mm -hmm. in athletics, because Mm -hmm. that seems to be the place where they, in my humble opinion, really (laughs) sort of test their success and failure. What do you say to those parents that are standing on the side of the field yelling at their kid? Um, Because I've been in situations where It makes me so uncomfortable, but also I'm thinking, I don't think they should be allowed to. (laughs) Like, I don't think that's allowed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole chapter in Gift to Failure about sports that I found really interesting, mainly because I wasn't a big sports parent until pretty much when Gift to Failure was happening and my son did cross country. But there was this really interesting uh, survey I looked at. This guy who works with really high-level athletes asked them about their experiences in youth sports. He asked them about their favorite part of it and their least favorite part of it. Their least favorite part of youth sports was the ride home with their parents from the big game I or believe the big it. match. I believe and it. And their favorite part was when their grandparents came to watch them play. So my message for parents is almost always be more like a grandparent and less like a parent. Be there for the joy of watching your kid participate in something that they love. Um, I also, I have to throw back to um, one of my very favorite pieces of advice ever that came from a friend of mine, um, Glennon Doyle and yes. her wife, Abby Wambach. Yes. So there was a wonderful Instagram post ages ago that um, Glennon put up there where she said, you know, Abby, as a professional soccer player has a lot to say about how everyone should play soccer. And yet when their daughter was playing soccer, Abby would ask her two questions when she got off the field. Number one, did you have a good time? And how do you feel about how you played? And she said, if you know more about soccer than my wife, Abby, feel free to ask lots of other questions, but I highly doubt it. And those are the two most important questions you can ask a kid. And what essentially those parents screaming on the sidelines are doing is ruining their child's joy for that sport. They are torpedoing that joy. And essentially it becomes like that extrinsic motivator thing where you are going to undermine your kid's interest and joy um, in the sport over the long term. And, and tell me about autonomy parenting. Yeah, autonomy supportive parenting. Yeah, I, um, I aspire. A woman named Wendy Grolnick, she Mm -hmm. has written a couple of books about the way we parent and how that affects kids. And she did this cool experiment where she brought... Uh, mother-infant pairs to her lab, and she gave the kids uh, a task that would be frustrating for them. It was challenging. It was maybe even a little bit beyond their ability level. And she watched the mother and the child as they completed this ta- the task. And then the next time the kids came back to the lab, she separated the kids from their parents because she wanted to see how the kids would deal with a frustrating task when the parent wasn't there. And it turns out that kids who have highly directive parents, and the word, uh, there's another word for highly directive parents, it's controlling, but directive tends to go down a little easier, you know, (laughs) don't get as upset. (laughs) Directive are things like, no, 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 don't do it that way, do it this way. Or here's step one, step two, step three, no, 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 don't ask any questions, no whys here, just do it the way I said. That's directive. Mm -hmm. Someone who's always there with the next step before you even think to ask the question. And so the kids never really have a chance to get 
frustrated and deal with their frustration. That's directive parenting. Autonomy supportive parenting are parents who give the kids opportunities to struggle a little bit and will help redirect, but won't give any answers, won't take over, that kind of thing. The children of the directive parents um, were unable to complete the task on their own when their parent was not present. They just didn't have the emotional wherewithal to stick with it when they didn't have someone right there at that second they got frustrated to tell them the next step. Whereas the kids of the autonomy supportive parents who let the kids do it the way they wanted, how they do it, in what order they do it, in what color ink they want to do it, um, those kids, almost all of them completed the same task. So there's a huge difference there. And then you think about what happens when those kids go to school, the Mm -hmm. ability to sort of say, okay, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to walk around the room a few, I'm going to get a snack and I'll come back to this and maybe I'll see it from a different angle when I sit back down. Those kids who can do that, they're going to learn a lot more in a classroom than a kid who gives up because they get frustrated. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I'm late. I'm late. Very important Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com at JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count Welcome back with more Go Ask Alley. Because so many parents look at their kids as an extension of them, you must see uh-huh. so many parents 
that have a really hard time not being directive parents, particularly when it's around an area that is that they are sort of geniuses at or have yeah, perfected yeah. or work in, oh, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have to tell you, there were times when, when my kids were younger and they had art projects or they had charts. What I had to do to stop myself from getting the ruler and all my great colored <laughs> pens and my glitter, because, you know, I'm like, presentation is everything. So, I mean, <laughs> so how can a parent know if they're being too directive or not directive enough with their teen? Let's see. That's a really great question. Uh, think about Take a breath when you're answering a question for a kid and think about whether or not it would be beneficial for them to have a minute to think about it themselves. For me as a teacher in my classroom, I tend to have a 10 seconds of silence rule. Um, Mm -hmm. If I put a question out to the class, especially if it's about a complicated question, I really don't allow anyone to sort of, you know, go, ooh, I know the answer or ooh, I have a question until we've had really 10 seconds to sort of think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, That buffer space of silence often give kids the opportunity to reflect on the question before they just assume they don't know it or assume they do without thinking through uh, the question itself and maybe they're going in the wrong direction. So just let there be a little bit of quiet. And if your kid gives up really easily when they can't do something right the very first time they try, it might be an indication that there has been some directive parenting going on in the past. Mm-hmm. And then the way you fix that is to just allow for some more time. And even if that means that your kid is in the next room and they're like yelling for your help and you say something like, you know what, I'm chopping some green peppers right now for dinner. Just give me a couple of minutes. And in the meantime, why don't you go back and reread the instructions or think about it another time or switch to the next problem and come back to this one? Just start creating that comfortable space to feel frustration so that your kid can become more acquainted with it. And, you know, at a certain point, there's a certain amount of just being there to listen. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, (laughs) when kids are working independently in my classroom and they raise their hand and they start freaking out, 90% of the successes I experience in those moments have to do with my standing there and listening while they repeat what they think the problem is before they say, oh, oh, never mind. Figure, I, I just figured it out on my own. Forget it. So try to do a little bit more of that. Try yeah. being, um, why don't you describe the problem to me? How did your teacher talk about solving this problem? Uh, have you read the, why don't you go back and reread the instructions and make sure you're not forgetting anything? Um, it looks like you got numbers one through 10. Okay, what's different about number 11 that makes it so that you feel stuck? And if worse comes to worse, right now we're in a period where there's a lot of communication between teacher and student because you can email, you can text, there's the Zoom thing, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of ways you can do it, is incomplete homework can actually be of great benefit to a teacher and a student because it conveys information, especially when that student writes a note to explain, look, I did number 10 this way, number 11 is just not working this way, and I don't understand it. But if you fix or do number 11 for them, the teacher has no idea that it's a problem. So when that kid goes on to the test on the material that number 11 was on, of course the kid is still not going to understand it and not be able to manipulate that information in novel ways. So your job as a parent when it comes to homework, um, especially for older kids, is redirecting, um, reiterating, listening, um, and have some patience with the struggle. So uh, I was just going to add one thing to this, which is doing Mm -hmm. um, college essays now. My husband and I will not (laughs) help. We won't. And it's it's excruciating because it's very important that my daughter 
it's her voice. It's what she mm-hmm. has to say. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard when you know it's going to an Ivy League school right. and there's a sentence that's like, um, like the thing about me is, yeah. and you go, oh, God. But anyway. Well, let me say just really quickly since it came up. College you're, essays. You're gonna one, write. You, you're gonna write my daughter's essays. <laughs> you are not the best person to help with the college essays. Often, mm-hmm. um, often English teachers will help with that. Um, you know, if there is ever a time to get a tutor just to read something, um, this is a great opportunity. Having their friends read it, a lot of peer reading can really be helpful. Because as someone who has helped kids with college essays, I can spot parents writing in a college essay from thirty paces. It is so easy to spot. Mm-hmm. Kids who are applying to college are expected to sound like kids who are applying to college. And at a certain point, um, the kid needs to come through. And so that's just just for background. Having the kid come through in an essay, like that's magic when that happens. And the minute a parental hand is on it, it's over. You know, But, it's but would you over. say that about um, learning in general, that they should go to their peers if they don't understand an assignment? Or, I mean, should they work together with other students as opposed to go right to the teacher or the parent first? Does that seem to work? Um, it, depends on, it depends on the age. Um, I will tell you that after I learned about the research and how the brain actually learns best, I did switch to a lot more peer-to-peer teaching. Um, it, it changed the whole dynamic in my classroom. It allowed kids to feel competent about their own learning when they could teach it to someone else. Any teacher will tell you, you don't really know something until you teach it to someone else anyway. It it also, one of the, which the, the counselors at school loved, at my school loved, which is um, peer-to-peer teaching requires kids to really practice some perspective taking and empathy because they can't just give the right answer. They have to be able to understand why so-and-so got the wrong answer. What was his thinking behind that answer that he got that wrong? So in my classroom anyway, I did a lot more sort of letting the kids um, work on each other's work. And in fact, my husband teaches um, medical school and residence. And he was working on a test the other night um, while we were reading before bed. It's it's a very exciting household around here. And he said, oh my gosh, I am loving this test because essentially what it comes down to is a lot of peer support for the learning as opposed to one person from up high, the so-called sage on the stage saying, here's how it should be done. Um, It's learning cooperatively and in small groups we know for a fact is more effective than lecture learning. So um, when it comes to the parent though versus a peer, there are times for both. Um, And I say that from the perspective of someone who um, my husband has spent the past two nights with our high school kid working on a subject that's particularly difficult for him right now. And sometimes it goes great. And sometimes it's hard to hear it from a parent. Yeah. Well, we've been we've had some big fights in the past. And uh, we've also luckily my husband, George, and I get to say to our kids all the time, we don't know how to do your math. Thank God. Yeah. Because we don't know how to do their math. Um, now, there's a great book, by the way, called Common Core Math for Parents for Dummies, um, written by a guy named Christopher Danielson. And it's essentially for parents who would like to be able to stop saying that. Well, any any title that says <laughs> dummies is a book for me. Um, and getting away from the academics, how can a parent mm-hmm. be more patient with their teens if they fail, particularly during a pandemic. So if your kid sneaks out and sort of risks the family from some kind of Mm -hmm. COVID-19 infection, I feel like I'm, quote unquote, more educated about the academic process, but it's Mm -hmm. more about the life stuff that I'm worried about Mm -hmm. in terms of parenting and and failure. And how do you, how do you talk about that? 
I think the first place to start is with our own thinking about teenagers. And we tend to just blame everything on hormones, but um, it has to do with the fact that teenagers have very different brains from ours. We used to think kids were finished developing at age 10 because their brain reached adult size. But as we now know, thank goodness for the fMRI, we now know that they're nowhere near fully cooked and that they actually won't be until their mid-20s at the earliest, um, mostly because the stuff that needs to come online, the frontal lobe between um, this process called myelination, just that wiring up that front part of the brain, that's the part that thinks about risk. That's the part that thinks about long-term consequences. That's the part that thinks about long-term goals. If we give ourselves a break Mm -hmm. by remembering that we're not dealing with fully formed adults, that will help us give our kids a slight break. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things we can do is help be their training wheels and help lead them through consequences. Okay, I know you want to go to this party, but let's talk about some of the things I'm worried about when it comes to this party. And a lot Mm -hmm. of parents automatically think that kids can't weigh risks very well. Parents will say like, you know, I don't know what it is about teenagers. They just don't get it. That's not true, actually. Teenagers are really good at weighing risks and consequences, but they tend to value the possible positive outcomes more than the possible risks. Got it. So our job as parents is to help guide them toward thinking that is more adult, that is more in line with the real risks versus benefit equation. Having more of those conversations about the why of what you're concerned about. Teenagers are really interested in the why and less so in the because I said so. And so those why conversations not only give them more ammunition ammunition for their brains to consider, it also helps them know that we um, trust them with being able to handle these whys, that we're actually seeing them almost as equals because we can have these kind of conversations with them because we too often just dismiss teens as not able to function and that we do that at our own peril because they're going to have less respect for us and we're going to underestimate their abilities. Do we let our kids quit? Should we, should they quit music lessons? Should they quit the school play? I know they shouldn't quit school, but at what point do we let them relinquish? It definitely comes down to a couple of things. This is one of the hardest questions I ever have to answer because it really comes down to your priorities in your home. Mm -hmm. In our home, for example, um, music is something that's lovely, but it's not a priority in our home. In my friend Sarah's house, she told her kids, you will take lessons in an instrument until you leave this home. I don't care what instrument it is. You can change it up weekly if you want, but you will play an instrument until... So if you've been playing cello since you were six and you suddenly want to switch it up to violin, fine with me. When the pandemic started, some local stores ran rental um, specials and her kid was like, you know what? For the pandemic, I'm going to switch to mandolin. And he did. So it really depends on your family's priorities. Um, I will tell you uh, that this story has been, it happens to be a favorite of mine. So I thought, because, you know, there's research that shows that kids who are good at music tend to also have an affinity for math. So I'm like, great, perfect. My kids are going to learn piano. Darn it. I'm going to make it happen. So our friends up the street rolled their used piano down to our house. Luckily they were uphill. It moved into our house. Um, We had a a honeymoon period of a couple weeks and then it became the thing we fought about the most in our home. And it was undermining my relationship with my kid. And I was not willing to go there. It wasn't that important to me. I wasn't willing to sacrifice our relationship for the piano. So we found another sucker further down the hill (laughs) willing to take the piano. A couple years later, my kid, my older kid who rejected the piano, picked up guitar on his own. Um, We 
found out one of the things about him is he doesn't like taking lessons face-to-face with someone. He likes using a service called Jamplay or YouTube um, to sort of learn things online by himself. Valuable information I hadn't had before. Once he learned uh, guitar and became really interested in guitar, he came to me sheepishly and he said, so um, if you see a used keyboard like on our town list server or something, I, I think I might really like to teach myself piano the same way I learned guitar. And of course, we made sure that we found a used keyboard and he taught himself rather tirelessly how to p- play piano and got his younger brother interested. And now my kid, who I never thought would be interested in music and certainly would never take a music lesson if it, there's no possibility. He's upstairs in all of his free time producing digital music. That's what he does. That's what he wants to do. That may even be what he wants to go to school for. So the very thing that I decided to keep my nose out of, because I knew the minute my mom stink was all over it, mm-hmm. it was out. It's like uh, my, I wanted my kids to read A Wrinkle in Time more than anything in the whole entire world. And the one book neither one of my children will read is A Wrinkle in Time. My mom stink was on it. And so at a certain point, it comes down to our priorities and it comes down to letting our kids have goals that are their own and not our goals. Mm -hmm. A kid said to me recently, can you please tell my mom that I don't want to learn how to play piano? She wants to learn how to play piano. So gosh darn it, why doesn't she take lessons in piano? Our kids are not our mini-me's. Now a quick word from our sponsors. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. 
Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Welcome back to Go Ask Alley. Let's get back to the discussion. What kind of free resources can parents give to teens? You know, recommended apps or something to help them understand that rejection happens and that they are not failures. Besides me telling my kids or you telling your kids or a listener telling their kids. (laughs) For me, the best resources, um, mm-hmm. one of my kids' favorite shows growing up with Miss, was Mythbusters. We watched every single episode. And when I finally got to, I got to interview Adam Savage um, for The Atlantic and my son getting to meet Adam Savage was like, it was the event of his <laughs> lifetime. And Mythbusters was all about the repeated iterations of trying something figuring out what goes wrong, leaving behind the parts that go wrong and taking forward with us the parts that go well. Resilience is not a matter of just pushing forward when you do something wrong because that makes no sense. It's about learning what to take forward with us and what to leave behind and how to do better next time. So I'm all about, you know, showing kids real examples of people who have tried and failed and pushed forward. And there's all kinds of iconic examples about it. But, you know, things like Mythbusters and other adults in their lives that have had big failures and yet have managed to come back as smarter and stronger. Um, I'm, I'm all for those stories and, and our own stories. Oh my gosh. We don't even tell Mm -hmm. our kids when we screw up at work, if we were to come home and say, Oh my gosh, I hit reply all on this email. And now everyone is pissed because I said some things I shouldn't have said. And I don't know how to fix this. What do you think I should do? Opening up that we make mistakes and that we hope to get better and learn from them. And frankly, Allie, what you're doing is going to experts and saying, how do I do these things better? And if your response is to go back to your kid and say, you know what, I've been giving, I've been paying you for grades. And I found out from this person who has researched this stuff that that may not be the best way to keep you engaged in school. And so I have these other ideas. I'll still give you allowance, but that learning from your mistakes and doing better next time, that's modeling for them exactly what we want to see from them. So if we do that, if we model that behavior for them, that's like the best parenting we could ever do. It's funny because, you know, my husband and I sort of come from parenting from two completely different points of view. I was, Mm -hmm. he was very academic. I was very creative. And what we learned and what our kids absorbed like sponges was our failures or our things that were hard for us. You know, for me, I've always been very open with my kids about like I had a depression in my 20s, but I got through it and I'm stronger Mm -hmm. or um, I failed biology and I went to summer school and I failed it again. And I'm trying to counteract the fact that my husband never got below an A, but, um, you know, but he's had, he's had failures himself and they seem to light up the most with that stuff, much more than our successes. Yeah. I was asked to write about my greatest failure after Gift of Failure hit the bestseller list. And um, I told my students what I was going to write about, which was getting a D on a law school exam and and, and going and I heard that story. That's not the real story, though. Oh. My students looked at me and they said, 
that's not your biggest failure. Why would you tell that story? And I realized that I had told my students a story that I was unwilling to share with anyone else, which was that the first draft of the gift of failure was quote unquote, unpublishable (gasps) as per my editor. And so they talked about getting a ghostwriter to help me. And I begged for um, probationary chapters. I said, you tell me everything I did wrong. Mm -hmm. And I will take these two chapters that you've given me as a gift to try to get it right. And if I get it right, then this is just two chapters and blah, 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 we can move forward and I can have more. And two chapters turned into four, which turned into six, which turned into no ghostwriter for me and a New York Times bestselling book for me. Now, the thing is, if my kids just saw the success and they hadn't seen me cry about the editing I had to do, if they hadn't heard me talk about it at the dinner table, you know, oh my gosh, my structure was just all wrong and I I didn't understand the organization of this book. If they hadn't heard that thing, then it's like, yeah, mom had a New York Times bestselling book. Yeah, that's, that's great. Overnight success, blah, blah, blah. But they know that's not the whole story. What they know is, is that that was emotionally just devastating to me. And I had to hear all of that really difficult feedback in order to learn how to write my next book. And they were here when the edits for the addiction inoculation came back. And there were very few edits because what I had done with my feedback from my first book was make a giant checklist of what not to do next time. And so my editor on this new book said, well, you learn some stuff because we really, the editing on this is going to be light. And I shared that information with my kids and they know that this, the success of this book in the process, yes, I'll be thrilled if it does well. Yes, I'll be thrilled if it hits the bestseller list. But I've already succeeded with this book because I learned how to write a book out of the process of writing The Gift of Failure. And I'm really proud of myself. And I know they're proud of me for the right reasons. That is such a great story. And it's not only a great story for teenagers, it's a great story for adults. For anybody well, that once I tries, told it, once I told that story, I'm telling you, the writers came out of the woodwork, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, thank goodness you told that story," because I was feeling so bad because that happened to me too, and this was my process of learning. You are such a incredibly bright, educated, um, energetic, amazing human being. The fact that the gift of failure was a failure in its first try <laughs> is is makes all of us feel a little bit more comfortable. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on Go Ask Alley. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, Go Ask Alley. You can find us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and follow me on Instagram, The Real Allie Wentworth or Twitter, Allie E. Wentworth. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.